Hi, and welcome to The Sustainable Century, where we explore with experts, with leaders, activists, communities of interest, mothers, fathers, and kids, how to buy, how to work, and how to invest for happier lives and a healthier planet. I'm your host, Mark D'Souza Shields. Hi, today we're with John Friedman. He's a CSR expert. Uh, uh, on the loose and a uh, great pundit. Uh, and we're here to talk a little bit about some of the news that hit this week uh, that relates to positive, progressive sustainability issues, initiatives, and culture. Th- thanks for coming along, John. Hey, it's my pleasure, Mark. Love your podcast and pleased to be a part of it. Well, we're hoping to do more this uh, winter. But now, John, I remember when I asked you a couple of days ago whether you'd like to come on, I promised, I said, I won't get too political on you. So if I stray into the politics, don't blame me. That's all there seems to be in the news these days. Um, and I'm a bit of a political junkie. Even though I'm a Canadian, I'm a huge fan of presidential politics in the United States. Uh, and it's been hard to disconnect. So you keep me honest on that one, okay? No problem. You know, I have always... Uh skewed more to the business side of things rather than the political arena. But certainly this day and age, it's inescapable. Well, you know, John, for a long time on my old blog, which was called CSR Counts, uh, you know, I, I, I hewed that line pretty closely. But in the last few, I'll be honest, in the last month, three, no, two or three months, I've been saying, you know, I can't avoid this politics stuff anymore. I did a podcast with Rebecca Burgess of uh, Fibershed, and she was so fantastic. And she sort of turned me on to saying, you know, we got to think about the political angle. And then, and then, of course, along comes, along comes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who ignited some thoughts in for me as well. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll entertain that kind of stuff. But we'll, we'll come back to that later. What I wanted to start with was uh, the next head of the World Bank, it came out yesterday that Ivanka, Ivanka Trump and the White House was sporting the name of Indra Nui, uh, former chairman and CEO of PepsiCo, as a potential uh, head of the World Bank, replacing uh, Jim Yong-kun, Kim, who's been there since 2012. Turns out you interviewed her a while back, and it was in the Huffington Post. Uh, uh, the title was Writing Capitalism's New Chapter. It's a great piece. People should look at it. What do you think about her for the post? Well, well, first of all, I, you know, I, I did. I, I was fortunate enough to meet her at a conference and get permission from, through her people and through her to do the piece in Huffington. And I was proud to have done it. I don't know her personally. I've never worked for her. So I have absolutely no idea if she's interested in the post. But I can tell you, when her name was floated, I thought, now there's a person I could get behind for mm-hmm. that kind of role. Because if you think about it, the role of the World Bank is to end extreme poverty and to promote shared prosperity. And if you look at what Ms. Dewey has been doing at Pepsi and PepsiCo over the last few years, boy, that's right up her alley. Yeah, you know, John, I, I'm familiar with what PepsiCo has been doing here in Mexico. So I, you know, I'll put parameters around my knowledge and, and it's a big field of ignorance out there with regards to what they're doing globally. But, um, you know, one of the things I read in your article, and I'm quoting her now that you're quoting her, uh, we are delivering short-term top-tier financial returns. And when I see the words short-term, I kind of get scared. So tell me about what, if you know of any of their initiatives that that they are doing that could calm my worries about short-termism, because we know that's antithetical to uh, sustainability for the most part. 
Well, and, and, and you know, later in the piece, she's, she goes on to say, um, we can actually focus on the short and the long term and come out ahead. So she's talking about the balance between the need of short-term returns, which companies do need, as well as the need for the long-term. And how do you maximize both? Because the real issue is when you maximize one over the other, you either have a company that is thinking too far down the road and isn't taking care of its day-to-day -day business, or conversely, is so focused on, let's say, the quarterly shareholder return that they lose sight of the bigger picture. Yeah. And so that's where I think her ideas of leveraging this great tool, she calls it, which it is a great tool. It's the uh, single best economic model for lifting people out of poverty that we've ever created as a species. And that's capitalism. How do we take that tool and write a new chapter to it? I loved her analogy. You're not throwing out the book, as some people talk about doing. And certainly when you talk about politics, there are people who talk about, we got to get rid of capitalism. But capitalism works. The trouble is it needs to be refined. It's too resource intensive and it's not equitable. And I got on what I just point out as I get on my soapbox here, <laughs> I'm speaking only for myself and not for any organization with whom I work or have worked. So of, of course, that includes yeah. once again, the caveat, never worked with Ms. Newey at all. I'm quoting from her from the interview we did for my piece. So that's yeah. where I'm getting her thoughts as reflected through my writing, but it was approved by her. So I think I captured her pretty well. <laughs> I wouldn't worry too much about it. Um, lots been written about her and Pepsi that I'm sure <laughs> she likes or dislikes. But listen, um, one of the things that you said later on in the, in, in the, um, in the article, I think struck me as important and it relates back to your, you know, your, your, this, this whole idea of capitalism as being, you know, kind of the model we have. You said we, we may have to abandon our favorite scorecards, even replacing all of them with uh, ones that better serve, uh, you know, uh, responsible and sustainable businesses. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there are a wealth of scorecards and metrics out there when it comes to sustainability, whether it's the environmental... Uh, stewardship or social justice. Right. And I constantly see people saying, we need more data, we need more data. What we have is a preponderance of data, but a lack of useful information. It's, if you think about it, ancient man looked at the skies, and I should say ancient people looked at the skies, and to simplify the myriad of stars they saw, they developed concept of constellations so they could tell where they were and they could use it for navigation because there was too much data without putting some semblance of order to it that enabled them to know where they were. And it's the same thing with sustainability. We need to figure out what really matters, measure that in a way that's real and the way that's tangible and the way that's comparable and not just keep ever seeking more information. You can overload the system with too much input. Yeah. The last time I checked, John, there was like uh, 450 plus different measurement systems for let's put the quotation marks around it, sustainability. And I've always thought that that was a bit crazy. But, you know, I worked pretty hard with the Global Reporting Initiative for quite some time, too, and I found that that was lacking as well in different, in different ways. You know, I just don't know if there is a system out there. The other thing that I've been writing a lot about in my blog, The Sustainable Century, John, is the whole idea is – are the indicators that we use for capitalism actually capturing the things we need for two things? One, to have a sustainable global economy, and two, to be happy as individuals. You know, 
I think that there's some real work to be done there. Now, I just want to play devil's advocate uh, on on Mrs. Ms. Nui for a minute here. Is like, you know, the first thing that I thought of, you know, when I heard uh, that she was being, you know, floated for this position was, oh great, the former head of a dualop duopolistic palm oil addicted junk food slinging fat inducing company all wrapped up in a single purpose plastic bottle wow <laughs> but that's but that's the please same. tell me that's, you didn't just come up with that in this moment on the fly because that's no, like no, that's, I, a, that's some vintage double speak right there <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, and i love it by the way and i'll have to you know play this back and, and write that down you know i'm looking at it from a different perspective right you know, she talked about, you know, the ch a new chapter which balances the need of performance in the private sector in harmony with the progress of society, not to build a sustainable future, and that it would require society, business, government, and not-for-profit, all those sectors to come together. Yeah, I agree. And, and so you have to look at it beyond the specifics of the individual company where she worked and look at what she did within that context and again this is personal opinion and i you saw a real shift of that company looking at and addressing and in some cases they hit the ball out of the park and in some cases they kind of whiffed with some of their advertising and some of the things trying to raise up and tee up social issues but she was trying you know another person whose name is recently floated was paul Pullman from unilever right and and I'm going to go with, you know, I'm not sitting here choosing between the two of them. I'm certainly not in a position to do so. But the portfolio of products within Unilever's umbrella that are sustainable, that were captured under what they called their better living plan, right. was more than half of their profit. So what he was able to do and that vision was able to do was to really make the transformation, which is to have rather than one or two green or responsible products, having them be the value drivers for the company yeah. and organization. So, you know, there's lots of leadership out there, but you need someone who can also, you know, the World Bank is gonna have to deal with policy and gonna have to deal with politics and global politics. Someone who can help create a vision and inspire people around the vision. And if you look at that as the goal of what the head of the World Bank needs to do with also having had a successful track record in the private sector and running a profitable business, then Ms. Newey or Mr. Pullman would be, in my mind, yeah. very attractive choices. Yeah, I, 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 I thought about Pullman right away. I also thought about Rose Martirio at uh, mm -hmm. Patagonia, whom I love and I think is one of the only real iconic sustainability companies out there. I mean, I'm always looking at Unilever products to find a hint about what the hell they're doing. And I, I just think they should be more public about it. I um, just want to note, Gordon Sinclair, one of our tweet friends, uh, uh, tweeted, yeah. tweeted to us and he said, he, he thought Pullman would be good. And then he also thought Aruma Ote, uh, who is the vice president and treasurer of the World Bank might be good as well. And he, he, he noted a couple of folks from Harvard, uh, Martha Louise Minow and Catherine Drew Gilpenfaust. Oof, was a lot of names. Um, they also might be interested and, 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 and interesting as potential candidates. Just take a pause now to promote one of my favorite uh, sustainability uh, products called 
Home Biogas. It's a system that's simple and easy to use, which converts kitchen scraps into uh, gas energy. Uh, and they give you a little burner and you can cook sometimes up to a couple hours a day. Easy to use, nice to look at and great for the environment. So check them out at homebiogas.com. This is an unpaid announcement. I just love these guys. Now, moving on next topic. Something that you said struck me as very interesting, and I think it's in the news, and I mentioned it at the top, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's New Green Deal. Well, it's not actually hers. It, it was started by a group um, called the Sunrise Movement, uh, which you're probably familiar with. Um, and the whole idea there is to have something, uh, a transformative economic policy. Uh, a lot of the d details aren't defined yet. Um, uh, but it is focused more on fiscal and tax policy than it would be on, you know, corporate uh, sustainable development and initiatives. Uh, but I thought it might be fun to talk about it a little bit because um, people, I, I'll be honest, the reason why I really want to talk about it with you, John, is, is I've become a little bit sour on, uh, you know, corporate uh, leadership in, um, in in sustainable development. I, I you just see too many articles in the news lately. We saw one today with Purdue Pharma and the Sackley uh, Sackley family has has been pushing oxytocin. Uh, if is that how you say it? Oxytocin, uh, which is an opioid that's been um, responsible for uh, suffering of hundreds of thousands of people, deaths and and suicides. You name it. And, and they've been covering up information on how addictive it has been. Massachusetts is, the state of Massachusetts is suing Exxon for covering up their climate change knowledge. Uh, Mitsubishi got caught for lying about, um, you, you know, lying about uh, uh, fuel standards, Volkswagen, Walmart, it, the list goes on and on and on. Meanwhile, they do things that put them on the same podium as Pullman. So uh, wh what is, is there an alternative to taxing ourselves into sustainability or no? Well, and, and yeah, again, I, I, politics is not my area of expertise, but I think if you look at it, government can encourage a change in direction or the direction it wants. It, it believes that the future should go and help to create the right framework and conditions for business to be more sustainable. And so that comes into the play with things like climate change and, and, and the Paris Agreement. And what's interesting to me, ironically, is it was the Trump administration threatening to pull out of the Paris Agreement. They got states and municipalities in the US and businesses in the US to double down and say, no, we're committed to it. So sometimes, I guess, you, you know, the idea that it sets the parameters is, you know, when it takes them off, maybe they look at it and say, no, we actually have been saying for years we believe in this. Now it's our chance to show we're not just complying with regulations, but we're, or, or or frameworks. We're actually going to we're doing this because we've said it's good business and it is good business. But but you're right. You know I don't think whether you look at business and and the examples you cited, there are always going to be the need to verify with a, you know accountability and transparency to make sure that businesses are in fact doing what they say they're they are doing and supposed to be doing but my caution is you know, when you talk about a tax schema but you you have to make sure that you're not punishing the very people who will be hurt the most and in fact are doing the least damage and let me there's things like a carbon tax if you put a carbon tax on certain goods or services then the people who can least afford to do it least afford to pay more 
are the ones who are shouldering the burden. Whereas some of the big systemic things we need to do to address climate change as an example, have to come from the business and from the infrastructure, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I, you know, for the longest period of time, I was very patient with exactly the same arguments. I am becoming less so, uh, and I've been beating a drum in my own head called uh, the consumer deep state, which is <laughs> not to say it's about conspiracy, but it is about all these interlinked vested interests that make it very difficult to get the framework that you're talking about, which I believe would work if you could do it to get it up and running. And that's even, even when there are folks in governments that are uh, more amenable to these kinds of things. Now, the, the second point I would like to make out as well is, boy, if we just started doing what you were saying 30 years ago, uh, incrementalism might have worked. Well, the IPPC came out last month saying we got 11 and three quarters years. Yeah, well, the danger of that is that people won't act until it's 11 years and a half down the road. <laughs> and, and you elect people who are there for two or four year ter- uh, four or eight year terms, they're, because, well, my administration won't be in, in, in office then, so it's not my problem. The, the lack of sense of immediacy is yeah. a problem. It is a huge problem. But, but the doom and gloom and the sky is falling message tends to cause people into the fight, flight, or freeze mindset and people tend to freeze oh if you know we're past the tipping point there's nothing we can do when it's party like it's 1999 (laughs) well but that is the attitude or you know people will talk about how climate is so big there's nothing humans could possibly do to impact it well the scientists know that's wrong but people do get into that mindset what what can i do little me but if you think about it um the issue is not capitalism the issue is not business the issue is the culture that has been the dominant model of capitalism for the 20th century. And that's the American culture of conspicuous consumption and consumerism. Capitalism is an economic system where people retain the wealth that they generate from the work that they provide. But if you look around the world, there are other places where the culture is not conspicuous consumption, where capitalism is effective, and you have, to your earlier point, higher quality of life, higher happiness index, Uh, according to the OECD quality of life index. And yes, I'm talking about some of the Nordic countries, but they don't have the same cultural overlay on capitalism that we do in the U S where I have, my neighbor's got a big house. I need a bigger house. My neighbor's got a flashy car. I need a flashier car. I know that feeling. I used to have them, but John, tell me this. Yeah. Aren't you scared that uh, U S carbon emissions uh, surged 3% last year? I, I am scared that they surged three percent last year, but you know the other interesting thing people don't realize this is what caused them to go down after two thousand and eight. Two thirds of the carbon emission reduction in the U.S. was caused by the systemic switch of coal-fired electrical power plants to cleaner burning natural gas. Sure, that was a systemic shift, and let's face it, that was driven by a number of forces, including economics including the fact that having dirty stuff coming out of smokestacks was not popular in communities. So, well, you tell, you tell me, John, that it wasn't the subsidies in Europe and in California that drove innovation in the solar panel business that didn't create that, that the, the, didn't create the competitive conditions that is putting coal out of business, which is great. 
But it, how long did it take? It took uh, 50 years. Well, but to your point, coal has been dying for 50 years. Solar and wind and all those subsidies, while they are a portion of our electrical grid, they're at most 12% of it, 12, 15% of it. The vast majority of our electrical power, in fact, the most of it in the U.S. is now fueled by natural gas. It used to be coal. Coal About two years ago, natural gas usurped coal. Right. Um, so the question is, what are the big transformations? And yes, you're seeing people talking about solar and wind in a new way. Remember when those things first started, people said they're too expensive and they'll never scale. They're starting to scale, it's good, but it's going to take too long to your earlier yeah. comment about incrementalism. You can't put solar panels on everything. The other thing is if you switch everything to electricity because of the amount that's lost in transmission and distribution, you're gonna need three times the kilowatt hours you do, you're generating today if you wanna substitute it for the other energy sources as we're talking about using it for transportation with the electrification of vehicles. We have to be careful that we don't overload this, the demand before we can build the supply right. of the kind of supply we want. Well, this, John, we're going to have to do a wrap here. I'm going to, I'm going to leave. I'm not going to wrap, man. There's just something <laughs> I won't do. <laughs> okay. Well, next time we'll do hip hop then. Okay. Uh, listen, a couple of things I want to lay on the table uh, because I really want to have you back again. We're going to get some other people to join us. I think the next time um, the whole idea that, uh, I want to talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez being on the House Financial Services Committee and what that might mean to bankers, because we know that they, boy, they could use some reform. Uh, and I also, you know, one thing looking forward that I've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, noise in the news about is sustainable fashion, uh, which I've been heartened about. But then today in the paper, um, and you can, and I'll leave all these links on my, on my blog at the Sustainable Century uh, later on today or tomorrow. Uh, I read an article where well over 90% of clothes that are bought are used for a year and then not used again. And so what does that mean for the circular economy? I think these are some really important things as we look forward to the next, uh, the next decade. We have to stay on top of the news and, and try and, as you say, you know, push uh, the different actors, the NGOs, the, the companies and the governments, et cetera, et cetera, to move towards what I guess I would be calling a positive, progressive, sustainable culture. Well, that sounds like a great uh, lofty objective. And I just want to leverage one last point if I can. Absolutely. Many of the biggest fortunes made in the U.S. in particular, I have got some examples here, we're in the area of energy, like the Rockefellers, building and infrastructure, Andrew Carnegie, transportation, Cornelius Vanderbilt. Those are the very same sectors that we're looking to today to transform again. So people made millions of dollars doing that. That's where the opportunity lies. The next greatest thing, it could pop tomorrow, could come from anywhere in the world. And thanks to the internet, we would learn about it. And these people, these entrepreneurs who are looking at that stuff, are going to be the next wave of billionaires. <laughs> well, being the devil's advocate, maybe we'll just have to tax them a bit. Anyways, John, it's been a great pleasure, and uh, let's do this again soon. Sounds great, Mark. Have a great day. Thanks for having me on. My guest today was John Friedman. Uh, you can see John on Twitter at John Friedman, of course. Shout out to Graham Sinclair and to Scott Weaslow. I didn't mention Scott during the program, but he also contributed 
to some thoughts on who could head the World Bank. You can read more uh, about Graham uh, at ESG Architect, that's all one word on Twitter, and Scott at Scott, uh, one T, W-E-I-S-L-O-W. Lots of good things coming from them. I want to leave off today by mentioning a group I really, really like. It's called Sustainable Brands. If you're at all interested in the relationship between corporate sustainability and branding, well, these are the guys to check out. I hope you have a great and sustainable weekend. Till next time, this is Mark D'Souza Shields of the Sustainable Century. I'm Mark D'Souza Shields, host of the Sustainable Century. Thanks for listening. I hope you liked it. If you did, I encourage you to check out the Sustainable Century blog at thesustainablecentury.net. Remember to click like in all the right places. Better yet, pass the blog or pass the pod along. And remember, it's up to you. It's up to us to make this a happier and healthier world.